0: Welcome to Power Yourself, where I talk about the most important topic in the world, you. Hi everyone, I hope you're having a great day. After having the last episode with Fleur Humal regarding effective teams, I thought it would be great timing to introduce you to a book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, and that's by Patrick Lencioni. I see this book perfectly coinciding with the information covered in that latest episode. Patrick walks through five natural but disastrous pitfalls for a team, helping define some of the functional elements of what makes a team effective. He elaborates on the impacts on when these behaviors are not established, and he talks about tangible ways that you can develop each. The reason I am choosing to dedicate two episodes of this podcast to effective teams is because every single one of us are on multiple teams throughout our life. It's not just about our job. I feel it's tied to our home life. So teams as in being the family team, our social life, being our friends and our professional lives as well. So I think the more awareness and information we can bring to all of these areas, it's going to dramatically affect the experiences for the overall outcome. The thing I love about this book is it's not just a recipe book for leaders. It's a book for all employees and all people to help identify and understand that having an effective team does not just depend on a manager it equally depends on the culture that is set on a team and enforced by the team itself. The book gives us valuable information through the lens of a story. It's a fable, which makes it an extremely easy read, but it has such a powerful message that it's up to all of us to create a positive, thriving environment. He mentions in the book to have a great team. It boils down to two things. He says it takes courage and persistence from the entire team. So it's not just one individual giving courage and persistence. It really and truly has to be met by all people on that team. Patrick Lancioni says, As difficult as teamwork is to measure and achieve, Its power cannot be denied. When people come together and set aside their individual differences for the good of the whole, they can accomplish what might have looked impossible on paper. They do this by eliminating the politics and confusion that plagues most organizations. As a result, they get more done in less time and with less cost. I think that's worth a lot of effort. So with that being said, I want you to visualize a pyramid for a second, okay? So try and visualize that. And I'm going to give you the five dysfunctions that he gives us in the book. First one, and that's the base of the pyramid. And that's going to be the absence of trust. Now the next level, that's going to be fear of conflict. Okay, and then on top of that, you're going to have lack of commitment. And then followed by avoidance of accountability. And then at the top, it's inattention to results. Now each of these functions, it actually builds on the previous concept. So you must have the one prior to be able to reach that next function. So what I'm going to do throughout this episode is I'm going to talk about each of those five dysfunctions. We're gonna define it, we're going to go over the signs that Patrick Lencioni says, that when it's lacking in a team, how that shows up. We'll also go over his suggestions to how to build it on a team, and then we'll look at the roles of a leader. So first up, we're gonna start with the first function in Patrick Lencioni's book, and that's gonna be trust. So the pitfall being the absence of trust. He says this stems from their unwillingness to be vulnerable within the group. If people are not willing to put themselves out there, being opened with their mistakes, as well as the areas in which they need to grow, it's impossible to build that foundational element of trust. He also mentions that in the context of building a team, trust is the confidence amongst team members that their peers' intentions are good and that there is no need to be protective or careful around the group. Basically, it's about people being able to feel that they can put themselves out there and that their weaknesses or whatever they bring up at that moment, areas they're working on, things they've tried, that it's actually not going to be thrown back in their face later on. Okay, so just like Flora and I had mentioned about needing vulnerability on a team. It's about showing up, being honest with who and where you are in that current moment. And that's my opinion, exactly what Patrick is referring to. So he's really talking about the ability for people to be vulnerable with each other. So when you're vulnerable with each other, it kind of restricts it when you feel that they might use that against you later on, it's going to restrict what you're going to bring to the table. So having the ability to have trust in your coworkers or in your teammates, you're really going to show up and give that unfiltered version of you. You're not getting caught up with what people's thinking. You're really being honest and genuine about who you truly are in that moment. So he mentions when teams lack trust, what's going to happen is teams are going to show up and they're going to start to conceal their weaknesses and mistakes from each other. So really not being that transparent self. They're also going to hesitate to ask for help or provide constructive feedback. They're going to jump to conclusions about intentions without really asking for that clarification. He mentions they're going to waste time and energy maintaining their behaviors. Okay, so really monitoring their own behavior and kind of filtering it to what they want people to see as opposed to the messy version of them and who they are then at that moment they're really going to try to come to the table with that almost groomed version that perfect version and then also another quality that's going to show up in a team that doesn't have trust is they're going to start to dread meetings and find reasons to actually avoid each other So in the book, he gives us some suggestions to help build trust on a team. He says it's not something, first of all, that can happen actually overnight. It requires shared experiences and it has to actually be over time. He talks about having multiple instances of follow through and credibility. So it just means repetition. It's not being showing up and doing these list of things one time and that's it. It's really putting the time and energy to make it a priority and to realize that this is essentially the building block to an effective team. So some of the suggestions that he mentions are team building exercises. When he comes up with, he says, uh, to initially kind of get the ball rolling, you wanna go around the table in a staff meeting and ask a few questions. So you're going to ask stuff like number siblings, maybe the hometown in which people grew up in. Also, you could ask them unique challenges, maybe of their childhood and their first and worst jobs. Basically, the goal of this and what he's talking about, it's encouraging empathy and understanding. So you're really allowing team members to bond and actually get to know each other, hopefully allowing them to relate. So what happens then is maybe when something bad happens, the people are not looking at them as if they're their bad behavior because then you have that relationship built. You're looking at them as a person who just completed a bad behavior or maybe actually made a mistake. Okay, so you're not looking at them as that mistake because you already have that relationship built upon. So you already see the person as a person and that's really essential. Another exercise he gives you in the book And it takes a little bit more risk. So you kind of need to have that trust. It needs to be there a little bit. So it's like a next level building block. But you can have each people share their most important contribution to the team and the areas that they can improve on. So really sharing and focusing on one person at a time, going around a table, really have a discussion on each person allow them the airtime needed to really get personal and kind of say what they think. Then you could even acknowledge it around the table and share what other people think about it. So once again, you're building that trust with amongst the team so that they can be honest about what they think, even if it differs what other people think. Okay, so it's allowing them to have the courage with starting to say what they truly believe in that moment. So now to wrap up the element of trust, he looks at the role of a leader and what he says is to demonstrate vulnerability first, you have to risk losing face in front of the team so that all of the subordinates will take the same risks, creating an environment that does not punish vulnerability and where shared experiences must be genuine. So basically you're showing the behaviors you want to see if you're the leader. I always feel that, It's like it's the most essential step and I feel it's the biggest part for a leader. It's easy to tell people what they should do, but I feel it is isn't until the person actually practices it themselves that they do not have the same credibility. So basically somebody needs to be able to take this first step and mirror the behavior that they want to encourage in the team. Think of when you try to teach someone something like a child. If you're trying to teach them to use manners, let's say, you're not going to not use your manners in front of them. It's not until you actually use those manners and practice the behavior that really enforces the importance of that trait being accomplished. And really, it gives the person learning or being taught the action that The person teaching is actually showing that behavior as well. Okay, so it's giving more credibility to the importance of why you need to practice it. So next up, we have fear of conflict. And I think this is perfectly referred to as artificial harmony. What he says is teams that lack trust are incapable of engaging in unfiltered and passionate debates of ideas. Instead, they resort to veiled discussions and guarded comments. By building trust in a team, it makes conflict possible. Team members do not hesitate to engage in passionate and sometimes emotional debates, knowing that they will not be punished. So basically all great relationships, guys, requires conflict to grow. Okay, but most people are actually afraid of it. Conflict needs to be phrased as something that's positive positive. And that will only be accomplished when we actually have healthy conflict and successful exchanges ourself. I truly feel that conflict actually allows a better understanding of each other. And it actually just means two people care about something. By having conflict, it's actually going to give us a better product. Okay. One that all opinions have been explored and discussed. And that will only happen when people are actually not afraid to challenge each other and really say what they're thinking. So if two people or a team are too afraid to actually share what they think about something or what their opinion is, it's not going to allow us to be successful and really look at every single angle. I feel that every single person brings such a different perspective to a product or to something that you're trying to accomplish. And until everybody isn't afraid of the potential conflict that it might cause, I feel we're really restricting what we actually can achieve. So until really everybody decides and practices disagreeing with each other and being okay with that, I feel like there's a lot of missed opportunity. He also mentions in the book that when this is not commonplace, so referring to conflict, that people tend to harbor negative emotions, which is when tension starts to exist. When it is avoided and not dealt with, it will continue to reappear, which I totally feel is perfectly spot on. Think about it for a second. When people disagree, they don't discuss it. And that's actually where negativity is going to start to fester. People are much quicker to react with the next offense. And it likely results in an increasingly negative environment so whereas if we stop maybe when we're feeling we disagree or we're holding two different opinions maybe if we start to ask questions really explore each other both parties truly listening opening up their ears and truly listening to one another we all walk away if this happens with a better understanding and a better understanding of whatever the topic is at hand. So that's gonna allow us more knowledge and a better overall picture. So teams that actually fear conflict, some of the qualifying behaviors that exist in that team would be something like, first of all, they're gonna have really boring meetings because everybody's agreeing with each other. What's going to happen also is they're going to start to create environments where back channel politics and personal attacks thrive. So really promoting the behavior, not to mention it in front of each other because you might disagree. It's a, it turns out being, hey, let's talk about this after when the person ain't there and I don't have to confront them on why I disagree or why I think their opinion is not valid. So really starts to promote that backbiting behavior that exists. Also, you're going to fail to tap into all the opinions and perspective of the team members. And like I said, I truly feel that this is actually where the best products and the best results are actually invented. It's when everybody's sharing and you really can weed out and get the best possible solution instead of just one's... Because people are not challenging each other and people are too afraid to really disagree in front of each other. So some of the suggestions that Patrick gives to overcoming the dysfunction of a fear of conflict is first off, he says, encouraging team members to mine for conflict, having the courage and confidence to call out sensitive issues and reinforce team members to work through them. So really acknowledging when there's discomfort on a team, when maybe two people aren't agreeing, and really promoting them to work through it. Not just telling them to work through it, maybe if they need some tools, giving them tools, but really taking the time to acknowledge that it might be a sensitive issue and to really encourage them to work it out. Also, it's about giving real-time permission. The suggestion is team members need to encourage one another not to retreat from healthy debates. So a simple and effective way is to recognize when people engage in conflict are becoming uncomfortable with the level of discord and then interrupt to remind them that what they are doing is necessary. So basically reminding people as they go through it if they are showing signs of being uncomfortable to just encourage them that they're doing the right thing. I don't know about you but anytime you maybe have to Call somebody out or bring up stuff or maybe go against somebody. Sometimes we get that uncomfortable feeling and the dialogue in our head becomes, should we do this? You know, maybe if I just keep quiet, it's better. But in reality, it's about pushing through that feeling and being able to have that discussion. So by their team members or each other really admitting and encouraging each other to continue the dialogue and keep talking that's when people are actually going to be able to work through their emotions. And even though they're uncomfortable, the hope is that you've built the trust so they feel comfortable almost being uncomfortable with each other. So Patrick talks about the role of the leader uh, regarding the fear of conflict and what he says, it's the most difficult challenge here for leaders facing promoting healthy conflict. It's actually the desire to protect their staff members from harm and which will lead to premature interruption of disagreements and actually prevent team members from developing coping skills for dealing with conflict themselves. So think about it for a second. If somebody is always jumping in we don't have the opportunity to truly learn essential skills that are needed like how to actually listen and listen when we're being triggered and to not shut down and retreat and essentially resolve our own differences. So it's allowing us to build that positive relationship that is needed with conflict. So really kind of showing us that conflicts not the enemy and that we can actually get through it. So think of a kid learning how to walk. If we run and pick them up every single time they fall so that they won't get hurt. What's going to happen? Will they ever really learn the essential skills needed to be able to walk? So I think by being there and really supporting people, encouraging them when things get rough, it's about not stopping, not retreating. It's about sharing tools to maybe help them navigate through it and help give value, to help give them confidence that they actually have the ability to get through. It's just about learning the ways and figuring it out for yourself and being okay with being uncomfortable with each other or disagreeing it's about being able to listen and really try and comprehend what the other person is saying to get that better knowledge so it's like the whole concept you know the whole man teach a fish kind of thing so give him a fish you know they say you feed him for one meal but if you teach that person how to fish then you're going to feed them forever. They'll always be able to get their own meals. So essentially, by the leader encouraging the individual and really supporting them to handle their conflict on their own, or maybe with some guidance, it's supporting them to handle conflict in the future and develop the necessary tools that they will need in life to go through conflict. So the third dysfunction is a lack of commitment. And that's going to create ambiguity where no one is actually committing to a plan or buying into it. So Patrick Lesione says without having aired their opinions in the course of passionate and open debates, team members rarely, if ever, buy in and commit to this decision, though they may feign agreement during meetings. So basically pretending they agree because they don't want to have that conflict. So by engaging in productive conflict and really tapping into team members' perspectives and opinions, a team can confidently commit and buy into a decision that they have benefited from everybody's ideas. So what that's going to do is it's going to allow for clarity because people need to ask questions and be able to say what they think and say their opinion, and by doing that, it's going to allow them to physically buy into it because they're going to feel heard. So when people feel heard, what's going to happen then is they feel valued, and it's easier for them to buy in and to really commit to the team. So he mentions great teams ensures that all ideas are heard, and when needed, the leader can make the call. So the reason that this is possible, I feel it's because the time was actually invested for the people prior to that decision. So they allowed the team to really feel part of the whole, you know, they have trust in each other and they engage in healthy discussions, which allows them going right back again to feeling heard and valued. And that's gonna offer confidence in their coworkers and the leaders to make good decisions whenever time restraints actually exist. So when people don't fully commit to something, they're going to second guess maybe decisions when they are made, you know, was that the right decision? Uh, Maybe I don't like this new improvement. Maybe I'm going to go back to the old way. So it's really allowing them to kind of have one foot in and one foot out. So suggestions for overcoming this dysfunction, He mentions about cascading messages. So really at the end of a staff meeting, a team should essentially review the key decisions made during that meeting and agree what needs to be communicated to the employees about that decision. So think about that for a sec. If people walked away with that different understanding and meaning, then that's when you're going to have mixed messages throughout your organization or throughout your teams. So if you're really confirming, maybe if a big decision was made, really defining what was discussed and maybe what was decided on, it's going to allow that clarity when people leave that meeting. Okay, so really kind of summing it up so that people walk away with the same understanding. Also, another thing was deadlines. You need to have clear deadlines for when a decision has to be made. So it's saying that, hey, if you have anything you need to bring up or any concerns or maybe different perspectives or different ideas for that decision, you can bring them up, but they have to be in by a certain time. And what that's going to allow is it's going to give them the space that they need to be able to vent and maybe say what they think. But then by having the deadline in place, it says that, wait a second, we can only accept You know the feedback until a certain time and once that certain time has come a decision actually has to be made you know it's not about never ever talking about or you know changing the process in the future but it's really about saying and honoring that a timeline is essential a deadline is essential and we have to be able to make the decision by a certain time he talks about the role of the leader for the lack of commitment He says the leader must be comfortable with the prospect of making a decision that ultimately turns out wrong and cannot place too high a premium on certainty of consensus. So it's not about always making the right call, okay? I feel it goes back to trust. People need to feel like mistakes can happen. But when a decision has to be made, everybody needs to be two feet in, okay? And trying their best. If it fails, You can always reevaluate and try again later together and that's going to be without blame so if not people become afraid to try anything they they're afraid to really try something new or try a different approach and essentially without risk and courage think about it nothing really great in life has ever been achieved without trying something new on first so the fourth function that Patrick Lancioni talks about is the avoidance of accountability. So recapping here for a second, if we don't have trust, which gives us the ability to be able to handle conflict, then we won't have the commitment that we are all on the same page. And then if we're not able to feel that we're on the same page, how are we supposed to hold each other accountable and really help ourselves not kind of stray away from the goals? So let's look at avoidance of accountability. Lesioni says, because the lack of real commitment, team members develop an avoidance of accountability. Without committing to a clear path of action, even the most focused and driven people often hesitate to call their peers on actions and behaviors that seem counterproductive to the good of the team. In order for teammates to call each other on the behaviors and actions, they must have a clear sense of what is expected. So if we don't see everybody making the agreement and really committing to the plan as a team, we don't really feel confident on what's expected. So we really start to doubt if we should even address each other or should even correct each other. That's when you're gonna hear stuff like, that's not my job. When in reality, I kind of feel it's everybody's job. We need to commit as a team Because it's not just one person, let's say the leader, that can really come in and sprinkle magic fairy dust and have everything working perfectly. I feel it's everybody's duty as a team member to be able to hold each other to what the plan actually is and the behaviors that we've all agreed upon. It really takes everybody wanting better, everyone pitching in and doing the hard work to create that desired atmosphere, that positive place. And that means everybody needs to hold each other to the standards and actually be a leader themselves. Another thing he says about accountability is it's easier said than done. Even the cohesive teams with strong relationships, people might find it hard to hold each other accountable. They fear jeopardizing a valuable personal relationship. Ironically, This only causes the relationship to deteriorate as team members begin to resent one another for not living up to the expectations and for allowing group standards to erode. So it basically starts the breakdown of relationships. If we don't call each other out on straying away from what we all agreed upon, then we potentially get to a place that's so far off their desired track. So one person, think of it, one person on one side of the track and the other one far on the other side. As time passes, we actually get further and further away from each other. Slowly, it's going to actually impact the relationship. So things like, I can't believe that person did this, or it's all their fault. When in reality, we kind of have to ask ourselves, have we even talked to the person? And do they even realize it themselves? Guys, we're all humans. Every single one of us makes mistakes on a continuous basis. So, wouldn't it be nice if we can really support each other to stay on course? So, holding each other accountable as a teammate, as a coworker, as a friend, really, so that we all achieve a better result. So, teams that avoid accountability, Patrick mentions, it creates resentment among team members who have different standards of performance. You missed key missed key deadlines and key deliverables, and you place an undue burden on the team leader as the sole source of discipline. So it's like you're expecting the leader to really come in and set that tone and save the day, essentially, when I feel that we're giving power away when we do that. I feel a lot of stuff we can do ourselves, but, but we almost expect somebody else to do it for us. So it makes what we perceive life a little bit easier. But like I said, by us giving away the power, I feel then it's harder to be accountable ourselves, And I find it's harder to make change. It's when we take the permission and take the onus on ourselves that we can make that ripple throughout the team or throughout the organization, because we're choosing to hold each other accountable. And we're choosing to really define what we want on our team and what's acceptable. So suggestions for overcoming the dysfunction. He says, create a team action plan or team charter. And that makes everybody on the same page. So I know at my work, I talk a lot about team charters and really promoting it. What's happening for a team charter is the team itself is deciding what behaviors are acceptable. What do they want to do? What do they agree upon that is, you know, respectful behavior? You know, really digging deep on what respect means to them as a team. What goals do they want to achieve? Really allowing them to focus together and define what they want their role to be as a team and as individuals. Also, he mentions about Simple and regular progress reviews. So, you know, always touching base with the employees and touching base with each other, essentially. So the role of a leader when it comes to accountability, Patrick mentions, it's to help promote your team to be a joint unit and encourage accountability. So set a tone that is a team culture, not just a leader to hold them accountable. So when the team does not hold each other accountable, you must be willing to step in and actually follow through a tone needs to be set and it can't just be brushed off because they are a good performer. So sometimes we really make excuses because people are really good at a certain piece of their job and we kind of you know you don't want to rock the boat you really want them to continue doing that good piece but in reality we kind of have to look at what the impact to the team is. If we continue to allow them to conduct in this poor behavior maybe then how is that going to affect the team really as itself and in his book Patrick really gives a great example so I'm not going to spoil it you know go out and get the book it is definitely worth the read but he really highlights what can happen if as a leader you don't step in so let's say you know we all encourage each other to really hold each other accountable But let's say the manager sees maybe two people not hold each other accountable and not really discuss, or maybe a team not holding one person accountable. It's about being able to hold that person accountable, but then also being able to hold the rest of the team accountable for kind of not holding that individual accountable. So really being open and transparent and kind of, like I said before, mirroring the behaviors that you want to see in the team. So basically, to have a leader who can hold their coworkers and staff accountable, no matter what, it encourages people to do the same and not make excuses or brush things off. It's like Fleur mentioned in the last episode. It's kind of the equivalent to having a kid color on a wall. If we don't hold them accountable and tell them it's wrong or not acceptable, then we're gonna have to continue dealing with the aftermath of that behavior. So we're gonna have to continue wiping down the wall or painting it maybe so until we show them and really tell them that it's not accountable and hold them accountable then we can't expect the behavior to actually change we need to own the power and really hold each other accountable and address each other on maybe the behaviors that are not as productive or that were decided with the team that it's not going to be acceptable the last of the five dysfunctions is the inattention to results. He says that this occurs when team members put their personal individual needs, such as ego, career recognition, or even the needs of their division above the collective goals of the team. So it's when people are willing to focus on their individual goals really at the cost of the team. So think of like a solo person really wanting to look good. They don't really care about maybe the collective group or people, or they lack the desire to win as a team. So think of someone really trying on a sports team for a second. You know, think of them as trying to get MVP and not really focusing on the team winning. They are caught up with maybe looking really good and not about allowing their team to look really good or allowing their team to really achieve what they want. It ends up being, look at what I have done, not what look at my team has done. It's almost when people go their own way and they're not really part of the team. They're really almost done. They check out and they essentially just do their job, but they do their job almost in a silo. And this is where you're going to get, you know, duplications of work and then people getting frustrated that somebody is off on their own or showboating in a way. So he talks about the teams that are not focused on results, they actually get easily distracted, you know, they lose achievement and oriented employees. So people who want to be part of a team, if you have somebody who's really always on their sole agenda, they're not going to feel connected with them. And it's going to eventually drive that wedge. And maybe the goal oriented employee who is really the team player is going to end up leaving. Another thing he mentions is it encourages team members to focus on their own careers and individual goals. So really taking away the team element and that team potential of what you guys can accomplish together. So his suggestions for overcoming this dysfunction was starting with maybe public declarations of results. So we're going to meet this mark as a team. So really trying to encourage people To work together, see the whole unit and not just promoting that individual succeeding, really saying it's about the team finishing this and really, you know, making it a priority amongst the team. Also giving results based rewards, really tying those rewards, though, to achievements as a team. So, not encouraging that solo once again succeeding. So, it's really encouraging almost each other when you see somebody doing something that's team oriented versus solo, encouraging that, saying that it's great, and really bringing recognition to it versus when somebody's off doing their own thing alone, you know, really acknowledging that, hey, you know, you got more impact as a team or we're all in this kind of together. So role of the leader in this last dysfunction is for team leaders, they must be selfless and objective and reserve rewards and recognition for those who make real contributions to achievement of group goals. So once again, it's not about encouraging the top performers to achieve individually. It's about encouraging them and acknowledging them when they support the team as a whole. So really working to increase the team and not just themselves. Like when they do support each other, encouraging the team and almost like teach people instead of doing it for them. Really increasing the team as a whole and not just about them achieving the results on their own. It's basically teaching them what behaviors you want to see. If you're going to reward that goal type behavior, you're teaching them what you want to see more of. So think of the example of a kid sharing, would you encourage that? Would you positively encourage it or place more importance on them using it for their own benefit? It's all about what you want to promote. So I think the big part of the leader here is really promoting, you know, throughout all of the five dysfunctions, it's really promoting and practicing what they want to see in the team. And I think that's the real essential piece that Patrick talks about throughout the book. You know, the leader's role isn't really to do everything on their own. It's about to mirror the behaviors they want to see in a team. I think that's always the essential role. So if you want people to build trust, you need to have trust in them. If you want people not to have a fear of conflict, then you need to be able to address it as a leader. So really practicing and mimicking the behaviors that they want to encourage on the team. It can be translated to almost a society thing. You know, what behaviors do we as individuals, what do we want to see in the world? And ask yourself, are you encouraging them? Are you promoting those behaviors in individuals to continuously show? Or maybe are you not even recognizing them at all? Something to think about. So to recap what we've talked about in this episode, we've looked at Patrick Glesione's book, the five dysfunctions of a team. And basically, essentially what we've said is that trust being that foundational piece and the base of that pyramid, remember I asked you guys to visualize that at the beginning. So a team must have trust to be able to have the next one and that's gonna be healthy conflict. So when teams have healthy conflict and they're willing to discuss things with one another, even though they might disagree, They're going to be able to participate and have commitment to each other and to the goals of the team. And then once you have commitment and everybody agreeing to the common goal or common behaviors they want to see, then what's going to happen is you're going to see people being accountable, taking accountability themselves, but really holding each other to be accountable as well. And not just leaving that as the sole job of the manager. So when you have people who hold each other accountable, then what's gonna happen is they're ultimately going to achieve their goal because they're all collectively working towards the same thing. So guys, that's a wrap, that's it for today. As always, thank you to every single one of you for tuning in and listening to this podcast. My hope is that you got some insight and potentially a few tangible things that you can do to help all of the teams in your life function more effectively. So guys, don't forget, I would absolutely love to hear from you. We have a Power Yourself Facebook site, and as well, you always have the ability to leave your reviews on iTunes. So guys, enjoy your day. And remember, you always have the choice in your life to power yourself.